Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Chicago's Legacy Project illuminates and affirms the lives of LGBTQ people to honor their experiences and accomplishments to collect and preserve their contributions to world history and culture, to educate and inspire the public and young people, and to assure an inclusive and equitable future. Our guest, Victor Salvo, is co-founder and executive director of the Legacy Project. Salvo is Chicago chairperson for the 1987 National March on Washington committee. This committee led an estimated 5,000 Chicagoans to the nation's capital. The Legacy Project was inspired the first time the name's Project AIDS Memorial Quilt was shown at this national march. In 1991, the city of Chicago instituted the only gay and lesbian hall of fame in the world to recognize the contributions of its LGBTQ citizens, both to the city as a whole and the LGBTQ community. Several years later, Chicago once again chose to celebrate LGBTQ people by installing the first of its kind rainbow pylon streetscape on North Halstead Street. Through the Legacy Walk in Chicago, the world's only outdoor LGBTQ history museum and Chicago's newest historic landmark. The Legacy Project Education Initiative, a free downloadable resource, and the Legacy Wall, a traveling interactive exhibit. The award-winning Legacy Project is committed to challenging the social and cultural marginalization of LGBTQ people. Victor, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Um, I'm I'm well because I am inside an air-conditioned apartment. (laughs) You know, that that helps, you know. That really helps. I'll tell you, a while back I talked to Owen Kean, and he went, I mean, we talked about a lot of things about Chicago, and I get over there Mm -hmm. way a lot. Periodically, he said, you know, you've got to talk to Victor. You've got to talk to Victor about the Legacy Project. And I am really happy to be able to talk to you. I know friends of mine who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. I know Ruth Ellis is, 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 on, um, is there. On the walk. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I mean, there's lots of people. 
people who I know of and I've watched, and I think it's just, like, amazing. You are originally from Chicago. Chicago is home. Yep. I know um, coming up, you know, before, and I know that the AIDS quilt really had an impact into you, but how has life for a gay person changed from before then to now? Hmm. Well, I would say, and it's very hard because it's, it's been so long now, and I'm an older person. Um, uh, I remember the sense that there were no allies. No one ever spoke up for you. The entire system was arrayed against you. Anything said about you in the public sphere was always negative and steeped with stereotype. Um, the community itself uh, was not free of any of the isms that mm-hmm. the rest of society has. So there was a lot of what I would consider like a balkanization of the mm-hmm. different communities and very little interaction with each other. So everything had a kind of sense of um, being subversive, that that your sexuality um, made you part of a very sort of subversive club. Now, granted, there are, I'm sure, other gay people who would have a different take on it, um, depending upon where they were. I, I was out, and I had friends, and my family knew, and, and all of that, but it was um, obvious that you were you were floating along in a context that was imminently hostile, and you accepted those hostilities as the same way you just accepted the sky was blue. You know, mm-hmm. those were the realities of the time, and uh, and you adjusted yourself accordingly, and still managed to have a few laughs along the way, um, because we are, if anything, a, a funny good-natured group of people mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. tend to um, make the best of any circumstance that we we're, we're find ourselves in. Um, it, it, I can't really separate the changes socially from the changes politically in Chicago mm-hmm. and really largely driven by um, ACT UP's unwillingness to accept the status quo, even though by the time ACT UP um, came on the scene, I was already in my 30s, my early 30s, and would probably be considered even old for then. Um, it's funny how our perspectives change uh, as we get older <laughs> mm-hmm. to what's old. Um, and so I, and I was much more closely aligned with the political side of things as opposed to um, the hardcore street activist side of things. I certainly did my share of, of you know, pickets and, uh, and protest actions and things like that when, when they occurred. But mostly I was somebody that was trying to operate within the system you know, as hard and on as that was. Um, but I, I really credit ACT UP a lot with pushing the envelope and um, in, in, in many ways bringing people into the, the conversation whose voices had not been heard. And 
Um, and it had an interesting effect, I think, on the, on the community, uh, not only ECA, but AIDS in general. Um, mm-hmm. It became, you know, uh, equal opportunity killer. And it didn't care if you were rich or poor. It didn't care if you were mm-hmm. black or white. Um, you got it, you died. Uh, it's unusual now to think of it as basically being a chronic illness, like diabetes or something like that, um, that mm-hmm. can be maintained with medication, but back then it was a death sentence for a long period of time. And I, I think that, especially for younger people, I don't know if they can understand, you know, reflecting back on what I just said about the context within which we lived, that we had no allies. We had none of these, these things that people take for granted today. And not only were um, we basically, it was illegal to exist, you know, after those mm-hmm. um with uh, versus Bauer's decision of the Supreme Court um, in the early 80s, I want to say 83, 84, I don't have all the dates memorized. Um, we were, it could be 86 now that I think of it, um, uh, all gay sex was basically um, illegal. You had no right to engage in, in uh, anything other than heterosexual uh, sex. Uh, you know, um, and at that that was happening at the same time as AIDS. So when the message that you're getting from society at large is that this is God's punishment and, mm-hmm. you know, for your, for all your ways, it's very difficult to, um, I think for people today, maybe to understand what it was like to still even attempt to be sexual during that mm-hmm. time. Um, because uh, and for some people it became an act of political defense, you know, that the sexual expression became more important than ever. And for other people, they just retreated entirely from, from sex. And, um, and sex is, you know, it's a basic characteristic of mm-hmm. existence. And, um, and to go through the mental exercise required to basically talk yourself out of it um, for all of these reasons, um, it, I think it really messed a lot of people up in terms of their perspectives about sex. And I've said now, as I'm an older person, there's probably no group of people you could talk to that would have more, a more realistic understanding of what sex is about than older gay men because we we know simultaneously both how irrelevant it is and how utterly important it is and um so it's uh you know because we were defined by sex mm-hmm. um the le- legally we were defined we our personhood was never entered into to the mix and when when gay sex was declared uh, unconstitutional um, it, and we were reduced to only a collection of sex acts that made us effectively non-persons. And whatever things we did in our lives, whatever friends we had, whoever we loved, whatever achievements we had done, however smart we were, however much money we had, it didn't matter. We had no right to exist. And, um, and, and so in that context, um, when you start to see the changes that began to overtake in Chicago, um, largely because of um, marginalized communities, uh, you know, because basically the gay white men were all um, by virtue of, of white privilege and, uh, and money um, because most of the ones with the power were business owners and such. They were very much connected to the old daily machine 
um, politics in Chicago. So they were able to carve out fiefdoms for themselves if they paid off the right police and, and sucked up to the right politicians to create sort of a, a modicum of an atmosphere in which they could conceivably do business with little hassle to them. So as far as they were concerned, they had it great. So when these agitators come along and start demanding, you know, all, all these things, um, it, it really put the community at odds with each other. And it certainly is not the first time this has happened historically. You know, my stock and trade at the Legacy Project is, is history. And mm-hmm. I have seen a number of times in which the more conservative um, elements which have access to power um, really kind of keep the heel down on those who um, uh, have not yet seen it. And that's why, especially like when you, you think about it in contemporary terms, um, you know, trans women of color do not have the access to power that most gay white men completely take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the cultural changes of which we are a part because every type of community and demographic and whatever has gay people in it, um, the, there has been an unevenness of our evolution. So in in the beginning, when ACT UP began to push that envelope, um, we began to have lots of conversations with other folks that we had normally not been talking to. Um, Gay men and lesbians began actually having to work together in a more constructive fashion. Um, uh, Black gay men and white gay men began having to have more constructive conversations. And strategies began to develop. And I don't want to, you know, create the illusion that everything was hunky-dory and everybody got along great or anything like Mm -hmm. that. There was, there was still a lot of pushback, and, you know, all, all of these things are, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But uh, what Martin Luther King, you know, said, the arc of progress uh, bends. Um, and, and if you have time and if you have patience and if you try to keep, think big picture, you begin to see these changes taking place. Um, and we were fortunate in that um, we had, uh, you know, the mayor here in Chicago, Harold Washington, really mm-hmm. did – I think more to empower um, progressive um, LGBTQ people to find their voice. He gave them access. Um, and, and through a lot of the organization that went on around that, um, those, those parts of the, of the community which had not had access to power um, started um, getting it. And changes slowly began to take place. And, and what happened because of Washington, who was mayor for far too short a period of time, um, was that it's, it, it made us um, a registered political commodity that other people at least had to start paying lip service to before we never even got the lip service. You know, today it's funny, you know, look in the, the pride parades and all that, and you see all the mm-hmm, politicians mm-hmm. in front of the parade, and they're all jockeying for a position. I remember when you couldn't get somebody to return your phone call, let alone want to march in a parade. And, um, and, and Harold was really the person who was a catalyst for that. So, um, <clears throat> as, and, and, you know, and that, and that was the um, early 80s, and as we continue to move forward through time, um, Chicago had still not passed a human rights ordinance, and was still very much in the neophyte category as far as political organization. Um, but we were fortunate in that we had allies in the progressive movement who were, um, and, and a number of people who were queer and were actually 
parts of other things and were able to start Mm -hmm. investing what they had learned elsewhere into their own community. And I think that um, just structure began to take place. I remember the first time we had um, a gay political dinner and the tickets were $100 a piece and people thought it was an outrage. (laughs) You're lucky if you can get something Mm -hmm. something for $100. And and what a big deal that was. And how um, we got really involved in voter registration. And it was our voter registration work that really kind of tipped the balance. I I always credit it, um, and one gentleman in particular named Norm Sloan, who registered almost 15,000 people himself, personally, um, as being one of the reasons why the Human Rights Ordinance passed, because clearly the community had finally come into its own. Um, and it would still be a while before we had an elected official um, representing us in city council mm-hmm. and such, but uh, we were becoming more common and, and less like unicorns. You know, it, mm-hmm. it was not mm-hmm. unusual, um, and AIDS certainly forced people to contend with the fact that uh, gay people existed, you know, right before that time because we were largely... Um, closeted and just sort of uh, thought of as novelties, we were never particularly taken seriously. And all of a sudden it came time to count votes. And if there was one thing that Chicago does, it counts votes. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't really care about the color of the person Mm -hmm. casting that Mm -hmm. vote or what you do in the bedroom. It simply wants your vote. And once Mm -hmm. we became something that was identifiable and courtable as a constituency, um, things did begin to change. And um, and even going through, I made reference to the to the Daily Machine. You know, eventually Richie Daly, uh, the original uh, Mayor Daly's son, became mayor, and, um, and 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 I had a real problem with that because I had really hated Rich Daly for years, and um, <laughs> and, and uh, so it was hard for me. And well, in the beginning, it wasn't hard because. He was he was such a jerk that it was that was fine with it. You know, he, he fit perfectly. But he began to change, and he largely mm-hmm. began to change honestly because of ACT UP um, and ACT UP's unrelenting attacks upon him. And mm-hmm. uh, and he didn't understand why. And, and it was finally, fortunately, because of some people who had his ear who were gay. Um, finally sat him down and, and basically said, do you have any idea what's happening in this community? You know, um, he got all up in arms once because somebody, you know, claimed that he was heartless about um, the deaths that we were facing. And, he, you know, he had just lost his son fairly close to that time, gone back like 25 years ago. Um, and he, he got very upset about, you know, don't ever claim that anybody else doesn't know what sorrow is. And, and that's, you know, a legitimate claim to make and, and, and the loss of this son who was young is, um, is, is, was terrible at the time. Um, but what he was failing to connect with was that everybody will grieve because your son died from a congenital illness. Mm-hmm. But when your son dies from AIDS and nobody's willing to talk about it or they just click their tongues in the background or it's something to be embarrassed about or lie about, it's an entirely different um, animal. And then you multiply that times thousands and thousands and thousands of people, where it's not just happening to one guy who lost his son. It's happening to an entire community that's doing nothing but going to funerals. 
Um, and because AIDS was largely just happening to us, I remember Larry Kramer, God rest his soul, just passed away. Uh-huh. And it's yes, like, it's like, right. It's like we are at war and where everyone else is at is they're at peacetime. They do not see it. They don't understand it because it's not happening to them. And, and that's very true. And, 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 you know, obviously there's, you know, metaphors and, and all that for what's happening right now. Um, and, and, uh, but what I, what I did see finally was that um, as the years passed and Daly's tone softened and he eventually became a really staunch ally of the community, um, largely because he knew on which side of the bread, you know, the butter was because mm-hmm. he saw us as being a really um, reliable and loyal voting block um, as long as he did X, Y, and Z. And he found out that there was no political downside to doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and he ended up uh, not only enjoying being with us and actually hanging out with us more. You know, most most mayors and stuff, they come to, like, special events and they make their speech and then they leave. Yeah. Daily would actually pick up his schedule by <laughs> towards the end of the last years. He would stay because mm-hmm. he had fun. It was different mm-hmm. to be with and, and that was, you know, a mind-blowing thing for someone like me who had, like, you know, grown up my entire life hating the Daily Family. And, mm-hmm. um, and I was never, like, you know, in love with the guy or anything like that, but I had to accept that, um, you know, what they say, uh, every, every enemy is a potential friend. No enemy stays an enemy, no friend stays a friend. Um, so we had to accept the fact that he had gone through this transformation. Um, and there's a lot to smaller details around the transformation that are probably, you know, irrelevant for this conversation. But, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I think that, you know, under daily, most people don't realize, like, for instance, uh, the pylons on Halstead Street, which are, are an installation attached to, those are made of daily's idea. Mm-hmm. That was his idea. To, no, to I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, you know. I want to ask you a question. Though, you know, we have. I mean, now, like you said, we're doing things politically. We've changed minds. That people are, are 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 taking notice of us. But you know, I have talked to and I have had friends. You know, who, um, and he said it's different how it is. I, you know, I talked to um, Edie Windsor's widow, who talked about, you know, who shared with me some stories about Edie. And how, like, you know, she would be like the beard with her friends where everybody knew, but they were able to. But then I also talked to LeWayne Childry, who's from Nashville, who was like, how he, he denied it. He denied it because he was afraid that he would be ostracized. And how you said how it brought community together. You know, how lesbians often end up taking care of the gay guys who the hospitals didn't want to see. You know, their churches wouldn't oh, do that. Sure. Funeral homes wouldn't do that. The, name, sure. the, the, the AIDS quilt came out. And, you know, there's one thing that, you know, people were starting to see, and maybe, you know, well, they acknowledge it. Maybe they had a friend who died. But how impactful was that AIDS quilt when it first hit? I mean, because the first time that you see it, you know, it is just like you're ready to – it, you get filled with so many things. The first time that I thought it was like the pain of all these people, but this is somebody's brother. How important was that also in moving these hearts, minds, and politics in the direction where we are now to where 
hey, we had a gay guy who was running for, for president. Mm. Um, well, you know, my, my, the creation of the Legacy Project, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, um, mm-hmm. was really inspired by the quilt. And, um, and I remember the first time I saw it, which was the first time it was displayed um, in 1987 in Washington. And, you know, the, the quilt for your, your listeners who um, may not know about it, it is, is well, for, fortunately, it's finally back in San Francisco where it should, should have been all along. And it's, and it's mm-hmm. being administered and managed by the, the people who should have been doing it all along. But for a long time, it was kind of in mothballs and not really used the way it had been originally. And the quilt, of course, um, many people, if you look it up, you'll see these enormous displays of it with 100,000 panels and taking up, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a mile and, and all that. It's really the, the largest public art project on Earth. Um, there, It is now so large that there really is no single place on Earth that could hold mm-hmm. it at all mm-hmm. one time. But when we first saw it, there were 1,924 panels. I believe it took up about three-quarters of an acre. Um, and it was off off of the ellipse in 87. And I remember you had to, like, walk through some bushes that sort of sequestered it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, at that time, you know, just so people have, have a reference, I was... I, I think I was maybe just 30 years old then, um, or 29 or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I didn't know a single person who was HIV positive, let alone anyone who had died. Within one year after that March, six of my friends were dead. Mm -hmm. So when I saw the quilt for the first time, I didn't have any direct connection to AIDS as a tangible thing. It was something that happened, was happening. It was, for those of us in Chicago, believed it was largely confined to the East and West Coast, and we were still sort of, you know, in myopic about that um, because it hadn't really hit fully in Chicago just yet. Um, But it was starting. It it was starting. It was just still um, in its infancy. Uh, But when I walked onto the quilt, the only thing I can liken it to, and I, I don't even know if my explanation can do justice to it. I was on one side of the bushes where all, you know, the other you know, millions of people were there and loud, loud noise, 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 and carrying on and all that sort of thing. And I stepped through those bushes and it was like all the sound had stopped. Mm. Like I, I was inside a vacuum and there was dead silence on the other side of those bushes as you walked onto the quilt for the first time. And as your ears adjusted, all you heard was sobbing. Mm -hmm. And I had never experienced anything like that in my entire life. And I walked among the panels and, you know, saw a couple of famous people and, and all, but mostly it was just people, just regular mm-hmm. people, somebody that somebody loved. And I started seeing white people, obviously, black people, brown people, 
people who did all kinds of interesting things, um, people who obviously were loved. And I don't think, for me, the full breadth of our diversity um, ever became more crystalline to me than when I realized that every kind of person is on here. Now, granted, it was predominantly men um, uh, in, in those early days, but, um, it, it, you know, I, I've always been a liberal um, even though I came from a very conservative family, my sister was a liberal and she was older than me and, you know, she kind of imbued that in me. Um, <laughs> so uh, it wasn't um, it, it wasn't like I came necessarily from a liberal background, but, um, you know, my parents were racist and, you know, all the things that you can imagine and, you know, they were products of their time, as you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but walking into that situation, um, I think I began to look at the community much differently than I had prior to them because um, I was still a young man. Um, Gay, to me, was still largely a function of having sex. Um, Yes, it was a socialization tool, but pretty much all of my friends were former boyfriends. Um, so there was an, an infusion of all that in there. And, um, and, and looking at the panel, at the panels of the quilt made me realize that we all had so many stories and there was, mm-hmm. the loss was just unimaginable. And to think that the quilt went on to become, you know, 20, 30, 40 times, 50 times that size. Um, eventually almost a hundred times that time, um, is, is mind boggling. The, uh, as beautiful as subsequent installations were of it and as powerful as it always is when you see it, um, I don't think anything will ever replace that first time. Um, but that the panels are supposed to, um, number one, first and foremost, remember who had passed and, and mm-hmm. memorialized them as war dead. It was like our version of Arlington Cemetery. And then it became a, a tool in a way, that I, I hesitate to use that word tool, because um, it implies purposeful manipulation. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think the tool was, the, the, the quote was ever purposely manipulated. But its size and, and its expression, especially in the context of the times, remember what I said, we were still illegal, or, you know. Um, uh, AIDS to me, and I've actually written about this a number of times, AIDS changed everything. Mm-hmm. Um, every, it, it, it changed our relationship to law enforcement. It changed the insurance industry. It changed the medical establishment. It changed uh, the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, uh, fast-track drug approvals that everyone's hoping for for a cure or a vaccine for COVID-19 would not even have been possible had it not been for the changes that AIDS imposed upon the research establishment. And, um, and by forcing an entire generation of gay men effectively out of the closet, which is what AIDS did, because you were either out because you were protesting or you were out because you died, 
or something happened. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a family in this country that was not touched by it on some level, whether it was your child or your niece or the neighbor's kid or whatever. Um, and you, you play that out over decades of time. I would say that the seismic shift in politics that began to happen wasn't so much an earthquake as it was like a slow rolling tsunami. Um, people, even staunchly conservative people, began to change because they had to come to terms with the fact that against all of their approbation, they still had a gay child. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, they had to choose between loving that child or abandoning that child. Now, many chose wrong. We all know those horror stories about kids being abandoned and it still happens, obviously. Um, but... AIDS forced the issue in a way because it, it was happening at such staggering numbers that um, change was forced upon people whether or not they were fully conscious of it. And, uh, and it manifested in strange ways. I've always said, you know, for, for all the laws that we tried to get passed and all the things that we tried to do, probably the biggest catalyst um, for, uh, for the changing of the hearts and minds of the public were named Will, Grace, and Ellen. You know, those, mm-hmm. those, those realities on the cultural landscape um, began to alter the conversations. And, and of course, young people, are, who are always, you know, two generations ahead of their parents on this stuff, um, began to adapt much more quickly. And, you know, over time, those young people turned into voters, and they have friends, and people started coming out of the closet. And it, it, it's everything that all of our, our oldest and most cherished activists had always longed for. Uh, I remember someone once saying, if everyone who was gay would just suddenly turn blue, um, we, 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 everything would, would, would pass overnight because people would see that we were part of every community. Um, but. Our, but our invisibility, which especially for like white gay men, afforded them access to power, um, and they were willing to sublimate the public side of their sexuality in order to maintain that illusion, um, because it it was the only thing they knew. And, and I'm not trying to necessarily be judgmental about it. It was more of mm-hmm. a survival mechanism. Um, I think about the very earliest gay activists. Um, from that, that I think was that we could likely target as gay activists, even though we used the term themselves, would be the Mattachine Society from the 1950s, which started mm-hmm. in, um, in Los Angeles. Um, those were all white men. They were all conservatives. Most all of them were Republicans, and most all of them were veterans. Um, mm-hmm. And they really refused to embrace the mantle of being a minority group because they associated the term minority with being black. Mm-hmm. So even in their own marginalization, they still needed to marginalize somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it was an identity thing. And um, so they were very reluctant to embrace the concept of activism. And again, mm-hmm. when they were starting out, it was a height in the McCarthy era. Um, mm. And for your younger listeners, that was uh, Senator Joseph McCarthy from Wisconsin, mm-hmm. who was obsessed mm-hmm. with communists hiding in every bush. And um, and, and simultaneous with all of this was uh, the publication of, of um, uh, Kinsey's uh, two reports on female and male sexuality 
um, several years apart from each other, but the 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 context within which these gay men were attempting to to create something as closeted as they as they had to be, they were so closeted they didn't even share their own real names with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Because just in case somebody got arrested, there would be no way to be forced to give up information you actually did not have, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine a group of gay men who are very close friends actually not knowing each other's names. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, and that was the way it was, but they met in private and they had their parties and, and they were very funny and, and all the stuff that we you know still are. Um, but they were doing it in an entirely, utterly hostile climate. You know, when... Um, Eisenhower signed the executive order, I think, Executive Order 1540 or something. Um, and I've said I'm not real good with the numbers, as you can tell. Um, but effectively requiring that any person who was even suspected of being homosexual be terminated from a federal employment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, it, it really is. It's just like a phenomenon. We're going to take our first break here. And um, so we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm talking with Victor Salvo. And, you know, Victor, I have had the wonderful opportunity of knowing Jim Toy, who is here from Michigan. Jim Toy just turned 90, you know, these years. And I guess he is on record as being like one of the first people in Michigan to be publicly outed. He was, I think Mm. it was, was, he was in a, a protest march and, you know, First of all, he said he had to decide if he was gay or not, you know, and he and his buddy just Mm. felt that they needed to be there. And at some point, you know, he just sort of said, you know, I'm Jim Toy and I'm a gay man. And Mm. he he just turned 90, okay, which is amazing. But, you know, when you were talking about the name project and what you're doing, when I sit and when I've had the opportunity, I've had the opportunity to work with Jim since he was like in his 80s and to sit and talk with him and what a rich life, the stories he tells, he tells everything, like oh, some of the things gosh. that you were relating. But when you think about when I, one of the things, because I think it was, I was in the 90s when I saw the, the AIDS quilt, I thought of like, so much is lost. Where's he, right. you know, I mean, just imagine if those people were 90 now, what they could have told oh. us and, and, and maybe helped us. Um, and you, you did that, and then you went on to start how did that cross your mind as you started to think about doing the legacy project? Um, well, three, 
Three specific things happened. I, w- I was the chairperson for the Chicago contingent of the march. It was my first like, mm-hmm. leadership role mm-hmm. as an activist. And um, so I was very consumed with logistics, nuts and bolts kind of stuff. And um, so it was all of that. And then being at the march, which had, you know, between 800,000 and a million people at it, um, so for anyone who's never been to a, a protest march with so many people, it's a very heady experience because you're surrounded by people like yourself. Um, okay. and that almost never happens on that large a scale, especially for us outside, you know, gay people mm-hmm. were allowed to get together subversively in each other's apartments or into dark bars, but we were very seldom allowed to get together during the daylight. Um, so having that many people outside and out and about, um, was really a, a unique experience. Um, it was the first time that um, ACT UP demonstrated publicly um, at the Supreme Court. 600 people got arrested there. It was the first time the day that would come to be called National Coming Out Day, October 11th, mm-hmm. um, was, was christened and, and, and took place. Well, the christening, I think, officially was the following year, but it was the first, it, the day October 11th, was significant because of the march in 87. Um, and that became the anniversary date that became National Coming Out Day, I should explain. Um, mm-hmm. But, <clears throat> so it, so think about it, it and, and I saw the quote. So ACT UP, demonstrations at the Supreme Court, um, National Coming Out Day, uh, being there at the march, and uh, the whole concept behind coming out day being to embrace the, the shared legacy of LGBTQ people, and none of us had any idea what it was. We thought we were very much in the know if we thought Rock Hudson was gay. That was like <laughs> the extent of most people's knowledge. And the quilt. So mm-hmm. for me personally, it was like, okay, here we are, living history unfolding before our eyes. We're being asked to remember all that we have contributed to the world. Now there is a plague that is going to kill every single person here. Mm-hmm. Because remember, back then we did not know there would be survivors. That, thank you. We just mm-hmm. assumed we just assumed our number was not up yet. Uh-huh. It was a death sentence. It was a death sentence. If you got it, mm-hmm. you died. There were no mm-hmm. treatments, you know. Um, and so here's the plague that's going to kill everybody here. We're being asked to, to share and embrace the legacy, and none of us knows what it is. Who's going to remember who came before us when we're gone if we don't know ourselves? So that really, and, and that all came to me on October 11th in 1987, and that was the birth of the Legacy Project. And I was like, there has to be a way for us to find out who these people are, and to celebrate their memories before they're lost to history completely. And then things, I started learning things. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt was bisexual, one of the most documented bisexuals in Mm -hmm. human history, Um, and Mm -hmm. still obviously not talked about. Um, Or as I said, when Ken Burns did that whole um, documentary series on the Roosevelt, the love that Ken Burns did not think was important enough to mention. Um, mm-hmm. You know, her relationship with Lorena Hickok the last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just Lorena. finished reading about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I started looking at, thinking about, you know, the, the Cole Porters and Bessie Smith mm-hmm. and, and James mm-hmm. Baldwin and 
And I was like, these are some extraordinary people. And maybe if the world knew that these people were like us, maybe they wouldn't hate us so much. Because we were living in a society where it was us versus a plague, and society was rooting for the plague. Mm-hmm. Really, the, the bulk of the political and religious and cultural structure of the country wanted us to die and left yep. us for dead. I mean, it was 10 years mm-hmm. before federal money was even allocated for AIDS. Think about that, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Everyone had a I thought we deserved to die. Mm-hmm. As though we deserved to die. Hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, AIDS claimed as many people in the United States within that, that crucible of time as, as were lost in, in the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and to think that it took 10 years for the first federal money to actually be manifest through the Ryan White Act um, mm-hmm. to help care for this. And, and the Ryan White was developed as a black grant program um, because they could not come to any kind of political consensus about who should get this money. So they basically, you know, kicked the, the ball down the road and let the states figure out who should have this funding um, to work mm-hmm. on, whether it be research or, or housing or education or whatever. What, you know, the states are given block grants in order to do it. So Ryan White money got allocated by Congress and individual states to figure out how they wanted to spend it. But in that vacuum of time, all of those things, the, the, you know, the, the AIDS foundations and all, all the things that we sort of kind of take for granted now that exist, these huge institutions, we started all of those. And we started them with no money around somebody's kitchen table. That's mm-hmm. how all of this stuff begins. And the, those changes were really fueled by the urgency of AIDS. And so there was a snowballing, I think, that began to take place where society began to change very rapidly. Um, Gay people were coming out of the closet. They were coming into their own. Um, Finally, the cocktail was just, you know, discovered, and people were now Mm -hmm. not immediately dying. Um, Mm -hmm. And AIDS became more of a manageable condition. Um, And, uh, and granted, it, it, and I always have to qualify this, it was still uneven. If you didn't have health insurance, your access to these miracle drugs was extremely limited. Um, if you were not part of sort of mainstream society, you didn't get the messaging. Um, it, so it was very uneven, similar to the way our rights kind of came about. Um, access to those, to those treatments was very uneven as well. Um, and it's always communities of color that are hit the worst mm-hmm. because that racism is so endemic with, within, within our society as a whole. Um, and it's no different, you know, for gay people. But, um, but I always think about it, at least we were one group of people that was trying to deal with it, that was acknowledging mm-hmm. that it was a problem. Uh, we were at least talking about it or attempting to put in place mechanisms to address some of these things. And, um, you know, every organization you had had to have a male and female co-chair. It was no longer Mm -hmm. possible for everything just to be run by a gay man. Um, And um, and you started having to, we imposed, you know, racial and demographic diversity on ourselves. We were the first people to champion the use of signers Mm -hmm. for speeches and events. 
you know, out of deference to, um, you know, to the deaf community. Um, so, so as hodgepodge and scattershot as it has been, this community has emerged, I think, from all of the poolisms that that we were hatched in, and has at least attempted um, to uh, address these things. And um, and that power began to end up getting shared. You know, like in Chicago, um, more people were coming out and were moving into higher-level positions and in the subsequent administrations. And, you know, the in Chicago specifically, I could say for Mayor Daley, you know, the head of the CTA, the Transit Association, mm-hmm. was a gay man. The head of the Chicago Public Schools was a gay man. You know, yeah. so... It, there was all, all this stuff was beginning to happen, which would have seen, and this is still while it's illegal to be gay because that decision was not overturned until 2003. It was 86 to 2003. It was 17 years that we existed under that, that, that political nebulousness. Um, but the Romer decision in 2003, um, about for, about Colorado's amendment two, finally made it constitutionally acceptable to engage in homosexual relations. Um, and, and that was an enormous, enormous victory for us um, that was really kind of the game changer. And all this stuff was, you know, all happening in and around, you know, the, the milieu of, you know, don't ask, don't tell, and, and Clinton coming to power who was a mixed bag, I guess, um, uh, <laughs> He was at least more or less on our side, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and uh, or he was as much on our side as he was willing to risk politically to be. Um, and he, you know, since he was a politician first and foremost, I suppose you can't really fault a you know leopard for having spots. So, um, <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, it, it is what it is. But as I as I've seen these changes, and now we have like six or seven gay uh, aldermen, um, mm-hmm. and they're not all white in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got representation in the the state uh, uh, legislators, mm-hmm. you know, lesbians and gay men. We obviously have a lesbian mayor um, and, uh, and and a black lesbian mayor, which is more fabulous. Um, mm-hmm. And she's <laughs> I know, it's like, I I love Lori Lightfoot. And uh, so I think that um, what has happened is because um, I was already an older person when these things started, um, I looked at everything that was happening through a lens of um, the Wayback Machine. You know, I was always comparing things to how it was and not spending enough time thinking about how it should be or how it's going to be or what is still missing. I was really preoccupied with how much had changed and not with how much still needed to change. Um, and, that, and now that I'm in the position that I'm in and I, I work so you know, closely in history um, in trying to understand it and looking, looking at patterns, you know, I've always been kind of a history buff, but now is actually kind of about that, um, and, and realizing that um, we were finally moving into a position as a community um, 
largely driven by AIDS, which I said forced an entire generation out of the closet, and that alone began to spur many of the social changes that we saw. And from that, the political changes evolved as well. And even that, again, I'm qualifying, is a regional phenomenon. The same conversation could not be had with someone in Alabama, right? Um, So there's progress everywhere in fits and starts, but in a place like Chicago and Illinois, where it is pretty much no longer possible to pass any gay law that isn't already passed, you know, we got it pretty good here. It's It's a bubble. Um, mm-hmm. here uh, uh, it, and we're surrounded by basically red states um, so we're really aware of the fact that what we kind of take for granted here politically is not applicable necessarily everywhere um, but it is changing and I think um, now I, I really sort of look to younger people to sort of do my reality check upon where it is we need to go from here. Because I still, again, as an older person, want to, on a certain level, rest on my laurels. <laughs> I've done my protesting. You know, I've, I've, I've done all that. And now I want to just sort of uh, sit back and, and, and be an oracle. Um, and... Uh, and the truth of the matter is there is so much work left to be done. And, um, and I still struggle, you know, with some things. I, I, I struggle with the pronouns. Um, I, I struggle with um, gender nonconformity because I came from a very stru- structured gender mm-hmm. construct, and I'm a, mm-hmm. cisgender, I'm a cisgender gay male. Um, so I, I don't understand that easily, but I'm getting much better at it. Um, fortunately, I have a number of trans friends, and I've been able to have very frank conversations mm-hmm. um, with them to educate myself, and it's been very enlightening. So I feel like I'm, I'm not so old that I, I can't learn new things, um, but I, I, I would say that um, I'm looking now more towards what the future is going to hold. This, of course, is, has to be qualified by whether or not we're going to have a future with the maniac we have. Uh, currently Thank you. in Washington, um, and and all the the madness that's happening um, right now, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point. But um, it's uh, I, I I do believe we will eventually be beyond this. We will we mm-hmm. will have moved beyond it. Um, uh, someone at once said to me, "The good Lord didn't carry your ass all this way to drop it here." Um, and and I kind of feel like that could be said for humanity. Um, mm-hmm. We have survived in spite of ourselves for a very long time, and it's hard for me to believe that this is a particular point in time when everything is supposed to crash to a halt. I, I believe that there is a, a future there um, that's probably beyond anything any of us can fully conceive, um, the next emanation of, of our species or whatever, but what we're going through right now is something that has to happen in order to uh, to finally excise this mm-hmm. um, from us because the the history of um, not only racial injustice but just um, inequity um, inequity and and iniquity um, 
the the remaining influence of of, of class distinction always seems. I mean, I'm not I'm probably talking like a socialist, and I'm, in many ways, I probably am a socialist. But um, I feel like until the means to access all that America has to offer in principle truly is possible. Um, you're, we're never going to not have these kinds of protests. And, 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 and right now we're dealing with um, someone who, you know, the country is floating in a bowl of kerosene and he's playing with matches. You know? Thank you. Okay. And yeah. uh, and he he doesn't seem to get it, you know, or he doesn't just doesn't care. Uh, you know, I think it's a combination of the both. You know, uh, he doesn't get mm-hmm. it, and you know, and he doesn't care. Which is ancient day. It's one thing to not get it, but when you don't care that you don't get it, that is just like you know, so scary. You know, you talked about yeah. Chicago, and you know, and we know Lori Lightfoot. But, I, you know, mm-hmm. I know Maria Haddon and Ken Mahia Beale. And for that matter, Andrea Jenkins, who was originally from Chicago and who's now doing it in, in Minneapolis. What is it? Uh, you know, is there something from that struggle, that balancing coming together that had to happen in Chicago that has inspired this next generation of people, these these activists, I mean, and, and those are just political people. I mean, there's other people who are just, just doing some amazing things like Vanessa Sheridan and Kim Hunt. And, I mean, mm-hmm. all of these people who I know who are, are from Chicago, and it's like, you know, it's all I can well, do. Vanessa, Vanessa is in Minneapolis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Vanessa you know, is, really. is in Minneapolis now. You know, um, it's all I can do to keep from wanting to load up the, the U-Haul and move to Chicago, except it's so damn cool. Well, uh, well, we'll uh, we'll welcome you with open arms. You just have to do that. Trust me. Um, I, it's interesting to hear you say that because I have always contended that at least when I was in my formative years, every person and I'm not, and I'm not just blowing smoke up your skirt, right? I'm I'm serious. Every person I met who was really really cool and did something cool was from Detroit. Well, that's that's true too. And, and they had all and they had all moved to Chicago. Exactly. Um, and I thought, and I, I didn't know if you know what the the dynamic was that caused that to happen. I, I know certainly Detroit's had its problems too, and maybe it was just sort of a a, a gay flight from Detroit or something that happened in the eighties. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of what what has happened here has really been a, a result of Detroiters, which is one of the reasons why I was so anxious to get Ruth Ellis on the walk mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because uh, she's such a brilliant example of, um, of somebody who needed to be acknowledged um, in, in a way for having done, you know, things that were extraordinary, especially during the era in which she was doing them. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, but, uh, yeah, I, I do think that... Um, Probably what's working for Chicago right now is that because it is so liberal progressive, and this doesn't mean, again, that we don't have our, our sore spots in the suburbs and all, um, but Chicago is really kind of, <clears throat> you know, I look at our mayor, you know, um, is a black woman, the president of the Cook County Board is a black woman, <clears throat> um, 
all of the, the people surrounding our governor, you know, um, are people of color for the most part. And, um, and it's like, I feel like, even though it may not always be perfect, we're like actually walking the walk here and not just talking mm-hmm. the talk. And, um, and, and that maybe it's inspirational for people um, and, and they're seeing that they have opportunity and voice. We have a lot of, of uh, people are in leadership positions um, who are extraordinary. You mentioned, you know, Vanessa and Kim, who I count as two very close friends. And um, Kim used to be on our board. Owen, who you mentioned earlier on, was mm-hmm. the co-founder of Legacy with me. And, um, and, you know, Owen and I talk every day. You know, we're, we're still, you know, still kind of our baby, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I think that it bodes well for the future um, that we have this sort of um, beacon or umbrella, and I hope if it brings creative people that want to make a difference here, um, th- that they come, because uh, that is really how communities build upon what they've got. Uh, and uh, it feels, you know, even though we certainly have our economic troubles here in Illinois and in Chicago, um, we're not exactly firing on all, all cylinders just yet. Um, and obviously there's deep racial problems and we have our violence issues and there's all kinds of stuff going on here that that's not good. But um, there's a lot of things here that are right. And, um, and I hope that, um, especially being a big city in the Rust Belt, you know, uh, with decaying infrastructure and all the other stuff that cities like Detroit also have to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 I want to think that, you know, if there's going to be a, a progressive rebirth, um, that Chicago will play an important role in that. I'm really proud of our governor about the way he's, he's handled this, both the governor and the mayor, um, what they've been put through uh, and how it's been made infinitely worse by the imbecile in Washington. Um, mm-hmm. I I think that um, it's cool, you know, and the fact that Legacy is here, I think, speaks volumes. Um, and I don't know if your listeners um, are not entirely aware of what the Legacy Project is. Maybe we can get into that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, well, that, well, I wanted to sort of to pivot into that because mm-hmm. I think that the Legacy Project, I mean, the first time that I was in the area and I saw this, this the first pilot, I was like, what's this, you know? And it was like, mm. you know how it's like when you first recognize not only, you know, but here's another gay person, but like, this is my history, you know, yeah. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and we are, we are of that age to where we didn't have, we didn't see people out there to where you knew I no. could grow up and be who you are and <laughs> be that. And, and here's the thing, and I right. think it's, I tell everybody I know, have you gone to see him? Go, you know, go find it. Okay, so tell, can you talk about the Legacy Project? So um, Legacy is, is a history-based cultural education um, initiative. Uh, it's a 501c3 charity. Um, this is our 10th anniversary year. Uh, we were founded in, in 2010, legally founded in 2010. The work began 
much earlier than that. As I said, the idea was hatched in 1987. Um, what we do is uh, seek out ways to learn and promote LGBTQ contributions to world history and culture as a very proactive tool to confront to confront the um, the effects of bullying on kids who suffer from self-esteem issues uh, because they grow up without learning about historically significant LGBTQ people. Um, at the same time, they're being bombarded by, you know, derogatory things in the hallways of their schools and stuff. Um, and, you know, and it's different now. I haven't been in high school for, you know, for quite a long time. Um, so uh-huh. I don't want to project too much about that. And I realize it is, it is a lot better um, now, but uh, you're still dealing with kids who are struggling with the closet and who don't have access to information because they don't learn about these people in school, or I should qualify that by saying they learn about many of these people in school. They don't learn that, that they were a variant sexuality mm-hmm. um, and, and the sort of conspiracy of silence around, you know, someone like Walt Whitman who was so lionized um, as a, as a poet in American literary figure or Jane Adams, um, mm-hmm. uh, the, the uh, forerunner of the social worker you know, um, mm-hmm. who made social justice her, her reason for living. Um, <clears throat> these people were, were queer and it had an incredible impact. Um, and so the project is basically about not only uncovering those lives, because let's face it, there's a lot of LGBT um, history projects out there. We're certainly not the only one. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. Um, what sets us apart is that we're the only organization in the world um, that has physicalized those contributions. The Legacy Walk, which was our first installation, um, which was dedicated on October 11th, 2012, exactly 25 years to the day. Yeah. The idea had been, had been conceived of creating an outdoor place where this could happen. Um, the Legacy Walk is a, a mile-long installation um, that features uh, 40 bronze memorials um, celebrating LGBTQ contributions to world history and culture. Um, it's international and multicultural. So Frida Kahlo is on there, who is bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbara Jordan, um, who is a lesbian from Texas, Congresswoman Jordan. Um, Josephine Baker who was a, a American born but is primarily identified with France. Mm-hmm. Um, World War II hero uh, who also happened to be uh, one of the most famous entertainers in the world and then went on to become a civil rights icon, which has got a fascinating life. Um, people like uh, Nuryev, you know, the, the ballet uh, star mm-hmm. who defected from the Soviet Union in the 60s. Um, uh, Alan Turing, the father of computer science, um, is on there. Uh, James Baldwin, as I mentioned, uh, before I mentioned Jane Addams, um, Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote Originally mm-hmm. the Sun. Um, we have uh, also Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, Shara Pylon, um, 
the because the two of them were um, so profoundly close uh, trans activists uh, during the 70s um, and 80s. Uh, Sylvia died, I want to say, in 2002. Uh, Marsha, of course, was murdered in 1992. Um, uh, we have one of the first transgender people ever known, um, Christine Jorgensen, um, who was the first the first widely known trans person on earth. Um, she was the most famous woman in the world for a brief period of time in the early 1950s. Um, and uh, I think I mentioned Cole Porter. Uh, well, we have Byron Rustin, of course, mm-hmm. the architect of the 1963 March on Washington. Um, Sally Ride, America's first mm-hmm. woman in space. Um, kind of going through, I mentioned Walt Whitman, Keith Haring a very famous artist, sort of the Andy Warhol of the 1980s. Um, a really fascinating woman that I love, um, Margaret Chung, who was uh, the first woman of Chinese descent to become a physician in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and she became a, a World War II patriotic icon. Um, she's a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, and then she was, when it was discovered after her death that she was a lesbian, she was completely written out of the history of World War II. Mm-hmm. Even though during her lifetime, every person knew who Mount Chung was. Every person mm-hmm. in the United States knew who she was. She was one of the most famous people in the country. Um, and then she was simply banished, banished from history. So there's an object lesson in there. Uh, Bed Didrikson, who was... Um, uh, Olympian who ended up founding or establishing the Ladies Professional Golf Association. Um, mm-hmm. Tom Waddell, the founder of the Gay Games. Um, I mentioned Frida Kahlo. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. Harvey Milk um, uh, from from San Francisco. Um, uh, Father Michael Judge, who was the um, chaplain of the New York City Fire Department, who was the first designated um, victim of the twin terrorist attacks uh, uh, of the Twin Towers in New York, uh, victim 0001 of 9-11. Mm. Uh, the judge was an, was an openly gay priest um, who was killed by falling debris uh, when uh, the first tower began to collapse. Um, he's called the saint of 9-11. Um, David Cato, who was a Ugandan um, activist mm-hmm. who was murdered in uh, mm-hmm. August 2011, um, uh, I'm kind of like running through the through the street of Leonard Bernstein, um, mm-hmm. the extremely famous maestro that you know, wrote West Side Story and on the, on our town on the town. Um, Oscar Wilde, uh, mm-hmm. Audrey Lord, who mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, incredible feminist and poet. Uh, I mentioned Lorraine Hansberry. We talked about Ruth Ellis, of course. Uh, she shares a pile with Alan Ailey, um, mm-hmm. sort of the progenitor of, of modern dance, a student of mm-hmm. Martha Graham. Um, we have a plaque to the two to spirit people. Um, it's one mm-hmm. of our historic milestone uh, plaques. Um, a, a really lovely woman that I, uh, it was just the anniversary of her passing, um, named uh, Dr. Antonia Pantoja. I know where she's about, Dr. Perry. Oh, yeah, yeah, Mina Perry, yeah, I love her. Yeah, you know, um, I don't, too, I just love her. And you know what, I love Antonia because having had Mina tell me about her, Yeah, you know. Um, it, was, it was so thrilling to be able to have her as one of the, the original um, mm-hmm. There's 40 plaques now, but there were 18 in the first the first year we dedicated in 2012, um, and she was one of the the original 18. 
Um, mm-hmm. She shares her plaque with, uh, I mentioned, Leonard Bernstein. And then mm-hmm. sort of moving on, on down the street, um, Barbara Giddings, who um, is considered sort of the grandmother of gay rights. Um, mm-hmm. She did her majority of her work between um, the probably... I would say the 70s um, was extremely influential, um, along with Frank Kameny, who's also on the walk. Mm-hmm. They're, one, they're not on the same pylon. They're one pylon apart from each other. Um, they were uh, comrades at the time. Uh, Frank was older than she was, but um, Frank was part of the original homophile movement that I mentioned from the 1950s. He lost his job as an astronomer because he was gay, uh, and he worked for the U.S. Map Service and um, was fired, and it turned him into a gay activist who I think probably, in, in retrospect, was the most influential activist of the 20th century in terms of the changes that he was able to bring about. Um, I mentioned Barbara. Uh, his his uh, protege, uh, Leonard Matlovich, who was uh, the gay man who outed himself um, in 1975 to his commanding officer in the Air Force to deliberately challenge... Um, uh, not only the stereotypes about gay people, but because um, he was a decorated Vietnam War hero, um, but they attempted to challenge the um, the banning of, of gay people serving openly in the military um, using him. And that it, it, they were not successful, um, ultimately, uh, in doing that. But he thrust the very concept of gay people serving in the military into the consciousness of America, which had never really thought about it before that. Um, Billy Strayhorn, one of my mm-hmm. favorites. I'm kind of a, a jazz freak. My father was a big band. Hey, my, my, uh, you know, I like that too. You know, you, you can't love jazz and not love Billy Strayhorn. Right? Oh God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he shares a pile with Vito Russo who um, mm-hmm. was the co-founder of ACT UP and the co-founder of GLAAD. Uh, he and Larry Kramer mm-hmm. founded both those organizations together. Um, Vito's main claim to fame was that he he, he was championing the, um, the historical treatment of gay people in cinema. So if anyone's ever heard of The Celluloid Closet, that was uh, the documentary uh, about Vito, the documentary itself, The Celluloid Closet, and the book The Celluloid Closet, that was all Vito's, mm-hmm. Vito's work capture how queer people were represented um, in the media um, and how it shaped um, our representation of ourselves because um, no one could be out. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, moving now, I mentioned Alan Turing, um, Ronaldo Arenas, who um, was the um, Cuban dissident who originally um, was a, a champion of Fidel Castro and then ended up turning against him when Castro's true agenda for homosexuals came out. Um, they did a, a rather successful film called um, Before Night Falls, and I want to say in 2000, starring Javier Bardem, um, okay. about the life of Ronaldo Arenas. Um, I like down. Yeah, down. Um, Cole Porter, um, mm-hmm. of course, who's a tremendous uh, contributor to the Great American Songbook, um, shares a pylon with Tchaikovsky. Um, mm. I mean that, that's um, a, that's a great mix, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a great mix. They're, they're both that's a great know, mix. music. Um, um, and uh, then we have a we have four historic plaques that are like milestones. Um, one I mentioned um, was uh, two spirit people 
mm-hmm. um, about uh, their place in history and and what their their struggle still is. Um, one about Stonewall, obviously, kind of obligatory, shares a pylon with Harvey Milk, um, and that's mm-hmm. what we use to try and educate young people about what the Gay Pride Parade is about. Um, and then we have uh, two milestones on one pylon, um, the Harlem Renaissance, which really was, for all intents and purposes, the very first urban LGBTQ neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, first, the first neighborhood, shall we say, um, mm-hmm. in Harlem between 1919 and 1929, shares a pylon with the story of the Pink Triangle and the fate of gay people in World War II. Um, wow. And uh, so it's in, uh, I mentioned also Alfred Kinsey um, is on there who you know, wrote those really, really provocative and challenging books in the 1950s on, on human sexuality. Um, I think I've hit just about everybody. There's, like I said, there's 40 altogether. Um, I think so. The walk, yeah, the walk was built over uh, <clears throat> seven consecutive um, dedications between 2012 and 2018, and uh, so gradually grew. There's only 40 spaces, so it'll mm-hmm. never be physically larger than it is. Um, but we're working, you know, a lot of the stuff is kind of on hold because of COVID and everything else is going mm-hmm. on right now. But the goal is to um, uh, eventually in a year or two have a visitor center on the street that will have a, a gallery space in it for um, more intimate kind of display materials. And, and um, the oldest plaques will slowly start to come off the walk and they'll be sent off to be refinished and then mounted for indoor installation mm-hmm. and they'll go into the visitor center um, so that all the guided tours that we do of the outdoor installation will begin with the retired quote-unquote plaques. Um, but that, that was done, it was engineered intentionally for the plaques to ultimately be removable so that they could be swapped out for new people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it, beginning... So we took last year off because we wanted to have one entire calendar year where there were no changes. So 2018 mm-hmm. um, was the year um, that both Marsha P. Johnson and Tchaikovsky were added. Those are the 39th and 40th plaques. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then last year we took off, and then this year we were going to begin again in 2010 to celebrate our 10th anniversary with a new round of people, except that because of what's happening right now, we're not actually mm-hmm. sure if there's going to be. Uh, the plaques have been sponsored and paid for already. Mm-hmm. We just don't know if we're going to be able to do a dedication. And well, I don't okay, want well, them to hold, have sure. Well, let's hold on, because mm-hmm. I want to talk about what was planned for this year. You've just finished listening to part one of my interview with Victor Salvo, co-founder and executive director of The Legacy Project in Chicago. The Legacy Project would have been celebrating its 10th anniversary this summer. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the plans for this year's celebration and the project's other activities, including the Legacy Walk and the Legacy Wall, have been changed. Next week, we'll finish our conversation with Victor to discuss the plans for this year and what's ahead for the Legacy Project as it enters its second decade. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest 
or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Blog Talk Radio, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. Be sure and join us next week for the conclusion of our conversation with the co-founder and executive director of Chicago's Legacy Project, Victor Salvo, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.